We can't say that we haven't known about this climate crisis for a long time. In fact, we've put more carbon into the atmosphere since Al Gore published his first Inconvenient Truth than any other time in human history. Hello and welcome to the Age of Plastic podcast, an environmental podcast with me, Andrea Fox. It was my birthday this week and I feel pretty pants about my first lockdown birthday, to be honest. I hope you are doing okay. This podcast is all about everything that could be connected to the environment using the gateway of plastic. So far in this series, we've heard about the ethics of who we bank with, with Becky O'Connor, the tricky daily environmental dilemmas, with author Georgina Wilson-Powell, Zero Waste Refill Delivery Service Charlie, and I've spoken with marine scientist Imogen Napa about plastic pollution. Still to come, how TV channel ITV are going to lower their carbon, but today we're talking progressive politics as I'm going to be speaking to Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, Sophie Howe. Now, her job is the only one like this in the whole world, and it's basically to hold the government and Welsh bodies to account on behalf of those who haven't been born yet. Now, Wales is doing some really progressive work. They're top out of the whole of the United Kingdom when it comes to recycling. Lots of it is down to their Wellbeing for Future Generations Act. And Sophie was also on the power list for BBC Women's Hour last year. Now, coming up in this chat, we cover pretty much loads, environmental and health issues and how they're connected to town planning, the four-day working week and robot taxes. Yes, really. Plus everything you need to know about the Future Generations Act. Now, a second reading of a bill very similar to this act here in the UK was supposed to happen in January. Due to COVID-19, it has been postponed, but it's been supported by Caroline Lucas, the Green MP, and the big issues, John Bird, who Sophie mentions in this podcast. Now, the Future Generations Manifesto is basically asking all parties to commit to issues facing young people, like climate change and social justice. Wales this year is having a really important election on May the 6th. It's the first time as well that 16 and 17-year-olds will be able to vote. So Sophie is basically urging the next Welsh government not to let them down. And just a reminder, we are recording remotely, so do forgive any slight sound issues. We are at the mercy of Wi-Fi. Sophie's job is to save tomorrow from the actions of today. I did have to ask her, does that feel like a lot of pressure? And she did admit that there were some sleepless nights at the very start for this job. I had to wonder, how on earth do you even get this kind of job? So here's the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, Sophie Howe, on her background and how she got this unique role the very first on the planet. I came from a, um, uh, a place in Cardiff, which is um, I have to sort of describe as being in the, the headlines for all the wrong reasons. I grew up in the 80s where there was a lot of unemployment and, you know, the neighbourhood I came from had all the wrong statistics in terms of teenage pregnancies and unemployment stats and, um, and all of those sorts of things. And I guess I've had a kind of a passion throughout you know, from coming from that background and from my um, early career working um, for the Equal Opportunities Commission in terms of, you know, why is it that if you come from a particular background, um, you're less likely to succeed? And then when I went into public services, um, you know, became really frustrated about the madness of some of the things that go on in public services and, and public policy delivery. So, you know, as an example, when I was the Deputy Police Commissioner in South Wales, one of my particular passions was tackling violence against women and domestic abuse and what I could see is that we were dealing with 35,000 incidents of domestic abuse every year and uh, most of those related to repeat victims so the police would go in um, they were filling in a form 
um, we weren't providing the victim with the right support and then we would just go into them again the next week, the next week, the next week. So to me, kind of getting to the root cause of issues and really shaking up a system which doesn't work in so many ways. And again, the, the climate emergency that we're in the middle of now is a prime example. We can't say we didn't know. We can't say that we haven't known about this climate crisis for a long time. In fact, we've put more carbon into the atmosphere since Al Gore published his first Inconvenient Truth than any other time in human history. So we've done that knowingly. And our systems have almost been um, you know, part of allowing that to happen. Um, they've, they've, they've permitted it. And um, it is really acting against any of our long-term interests. And, you know, I'm a mum of five. I've got a vested interest in making sure that we have got a planet for my kids and my grandkids to grow up in. So I suppose I come from the perspective of a frustrated public servant um, who um, and worried mum um, who wanted to um, to try and shake up the system to do better things. Yeah, and you've let's get into your manifesto for the future then, because um, Wells is doing some really progressive things, as I've already mentioned, and a lot of it is down to this thing called the Wellbeing for Future Generations Act. So that is essentially what your role does, protecting the future for for future generations. But what are the sort of things you're tasking the government with doing? So our act sets out seven national um, well-being goals, which link back to the 17 United Nations Sustainability Goals, which, of course, you know, every country in the world should be working towards. And they cover things like protecting and enhancing nature and biodiversity, because obviously we know about the mass loss of species that we're seeing in Wales and across the world. Um, they talk about reducing our carbon emissions. They talk about cohesive and connected communities. They talk about a more equal Wales, so no matter what your um, background, socioeconomic or otherwise, you should be able um, to do as well as anyone else. Um, and um, it talks about prosperity. And usually when we talk about prosperity or this goal of a prosperous Wales, we'd be thinking, oh, it's all around, you know, making more money, increasing GVA and so on. But actually, our definition in law in Wales is about an innovative, low carbon society, which uses our resources efficiently and proportionately, um, you know, within the boundaries of you know, what the planet can, can deal with. We're taking a completely different approach to how we see economic growth here in Wales, which it has to be um, growth which is within the confines of planetary boundaries, if you like, rather than growth at any cost. Our bodies have to work towards meeting those goals. So I'm so glad that you bring up GDP and GVA, as you mentioned, because um, I've read so much about how, you know, this was a target set up to work out if we could afford a war or something. And we've been using it and and we have this idea that growth can continue forever. So, um, yeah, I just find that really interesting that you're taking this holistic approach and you sort of are one of the first countries going this is a ridiculous measure now so so when you talk about sort of the holistic ways how are you sort of measuring things now we have um 46 national indicators which relate back to our um seven national well-being goals and they are things like um you know we want to you know indicators around health around you know the birth weight of our babies the number of people um who have reported mental health problems they're things like um the amount of recycling that we do and whether our carbon emissions are reducing um unemployment rates and medium um, earnings and so on and the really the really interesting thing about our legislation 
organization is that it requires that kind of holistic approach because what we've seen um, in the past and is still seeing across um, the world is this you know insatiable quest for economic growth at any cost and we've been prepared to um, go towards that economic growth um, and almost accept the fact that it's kind of fundamentally um, damaging the planet or just bury our heads in the sand um, about that. And I guess in Wales, what we've done is, you know, paused and said, you know, this is not, um, you know, the, the Wales that we want to live in. Um, we have this duty to protect the well-being of people now. And I love the concept of well-being because it's this much more holistic sort of, you know, your needs might be to have a job to put food on the table. But actually, if I asked you what made a difference to your life, you would probably tell me it's your family, your friends, whether you can go out for a walk with your dog, whether, you know, it's all of those sorts of softer things, the stuff that makes um, life worthwhile. And so those are the things that we measure in Wales connected back to those seven well-being goals and the decisions that I expect government to take are decisions which are going to make the biggest contribution to our well-being, not the biggest contribution to our pockets necessarily. Yeah, and I think that's so important for people to hear that we don't necessarily have, we have other measures that we can use to decide whether our country is doing well, whether our people are prospering, they are prosperous. And I think in your manifesto for the future, I think one of the things that you pointed out in that to do with health, it's not all about how far away you are from hospital how many hospitals there are how many nurses like when it came down to people's health I think you were like a lot of it comes down to whether they are healthy in the home what their what their home experience is like so let's get a little bit into that because you've made 48 recommendations haven't you for the political parties and everyone's going to be able to vote on that in May like you say you've taken a holistic approach this manifesto with the 48 recommendations covers everything from school exclusions to refugees to carbon neutral new builds um, so can you tell us a little bit about how you how you came to those 48? Yeah. So um, I've been in post five years of a, of a seven year term. And so my job is to um, you know, scan the world, I suppose, for, you know, where's the brilliant ideas happening? Where are great things um, going on? But also to have conversations with the people of Wales and, you know, all of their representatives and different groups and so on to say, you know, where are the challenges and what are the solutions to them? So um, before we even developed our legislation back in 2015, we held a national conversation with the citizens of Wales. They helped us, the citizens of Wales helped us to devise those seven wellbeing goals with the question, what is the sort of Wales you want to leave behind to your children and your grandchildren? I've sort of taken up that question um, a few years later to say, okay, how do we get there? What are the particular policy um, recommendations that would help us uh, to get towards that? And um, you know, looking at uh, looking at all of those ideas that came in. So we held town hall conversations. We had a big ideas platform. We worked with a lot of the um, you know environmental and cultural organisations and so on to, to generate ideas and this international scanning. And we came up with these forty eight recommendations, which we think, if political parties in Wales adopted for the manifestos for the election in May. Um, we would be making some significant progress towards these seven aspirational um, well-being goals. And, you you know, a lot of them are really connected because you talk there about the healthcare system. And, you know, there is as much as we all love the NHS, there is really compelling evidence that we are not investing in the best balance of keeping people well versus treating them. So... Um, you know, like Wales, the rest of the UK will be spending around 50% of its budget on the healthcare system. 
And we know that those people who are better off benefit more from the healthcare system. Those people who are more disadvantaged um, do not benefit um, as much. But we also know that there are much bigger determinants of health than anything that the healthcare system, the NHS, can do. So what makes a bigger difference to whether we're healthy and, and well in the first place is what's the quality of our housing? Um, what's, you know, what sort of environment do we live in? Are we living in areas of high air pollution? Um, if we are, we're more likely to um, to die younger. If we're living in poverty, we're more likely to die younger. And really interestingly, about 19% what makes a difference to that health inequality gap relates to social interaction and relationships. So do you have people you can call on in your hour of need? Do you feel a sense of agency in your community? So again, it's back to those kind of softer things. So just putting all of our money in a treatment basket is never going to get us to actually preventing people becoming unwell and addressing the real issues that, that make people unwell in the first place. So we've got to have a completely different process for thinking about this. So let's let's focus, let's chat a little bit about some of the other approaches in the manifesto because um, some of the ones that I found maybe most exciting um, per, just personally are the ones about 20 minute communities and a shorter working week because I think they could be really big really impactful things just off the bat so can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts around how you're trying to integrate that in Wales or you're hoping that political parties will put that into their manifestos as well yeah so we've made some um, real progress in Wales since we've had the Future Generations Act on changing the way that we do planning and um, you know designing and building infrastructure in Wales so we've got a new planning policy which is really aligned with our Future Generations Act so the premise of how we plan what we're going to build is that we have to demonstrate how it's going to contribute to the social economic environmental and cultural well-being of that area rather than just you know is it going to generate these amount of, of jobs or, or whatever it whatever it might be much more holistic um, measures. And in terms of communities, um, this came out really loud and clear from all of the involvement engagement that, that I've done with communities. And it comes out of report after report um, that people want to feel connected in their communities. Um, they want to be able to access services um, locally. They're concerned about the the reduction in services available locally, whether that's you know your public services or your local shops and um, and so on. And you know if we think back to the um, the sort of 1980s, where probably you know well certainly I was I was growing up, the rise of the out of town shopping centres and and so on have, have actually contributed to um, to a lot of that. So this concept of the 20 minute neighbourhood is basically that you should be able to access everything you need within a 20 minute walk cycle or public transport. Um, um, ride, um, you know, to, to, so that you can access those those services, and that we should plan and design our communities and what we build around that principle. Already, we're seeing Paris, the mayor of Paris, adopting fifteen minute neighbourhoods. Okay, it's a bit easier in a um, in a big um, in a big city. But if we work on that basis, I think we're far more likely to see these sort of connections um, amongst people. We're far more likely to be reducing our carbon emissions because we're not having to get into our car to drive to the local out of town shopping centre and um, and so on. That has a knock on consequence to our health, both in terms of reducing air pollution and getting us actively travelling. Um, as they as they call it. So I think it's one of those things that we should be working towards as a as a concept which has so many benefits. 
And then, of course, you could actually link that really to the four day um, working week, which um, I'm doing some work with a think tank called Autonomy at the moment to, to map out what could be the benefits of a, a four day um, working week. Now, there are a few reasons why I'm interested in this. So, you know, if we just pose the question, what if we were all working a bit less? What might be possible? Um, would we in the fewer hours or the, the extra hours we gain back um, be able to do more volunteering? And we've seen that you know throughout the pandemic those people have been furloughed the massive community response and we've seen this real certainly in wales and you know i don't know about the statistics in england but in terms of our national survey um last year people's sense of community spirit in their area was about 52 percent this year it's seven i think it's 76 percent so that's been like a massive jump um and that's because people have been putting this time back into their community now when you then start thinking about, OK, by 2036, we're going to have double the number of older people. Who's going to meet the care needs of these older people? Is there something around a community response if we all had a bit more time on our hands? Is it that we'd be able to, as I do now because I'm working from home and maybe you do too, um, you know, walk the kids to school um, instead of getting in your car to get to the nine to five to you know get into the office and um, and and so on is it that we'd all be able to you know feel a bit less stressed and our well-being and our mental health would be improved and so on but also when we think to the long term and we think about the impact of automation and artificial intelligence um we need to be thinking about some of these solutions a lot of jobs are going to change some will disappear completely some jobs will have sections of them you know taken away because they will be automated increasingly will be working alongside automation robots and um and so on and so thinking about that now and thinking okay how do we not just find ourselves in a in a catastrophe of job losses? Instead, how do we seize that opportunity and say, actually, we're going to value what that could potentially bring um, to us in terms of our well-being? Um, perhaps thinking about some of the things they've done in South Korea around a robot tax and so on, and thinking about reducing um, that working week so that we can focus on our well-being. I think those are the sorts of things that policymakers need to be thinking about now, rather than just finding ourselves in the you know the middle of the um, fourth industrial revolution where a load of jobs have been lost lost and we're all thinking oh how are we going to find these 37 hour jobs um, for everyone let's think about something um, a bit different. I think that's just so progressive and so exciting and I know you mentioned um, basic income in there as well and I just think you're so right like the way we work the way we live has changed because of the pandemic we still are not sure how much of that is going to remain with us once we're out of this pandemic um, and I just think this holistic approach and in everything, when you talk about um, the 20 minute uh, towns and cities, the I think there was a story in your TED talk, which has had a million views now about thinking about the rainwater runoff when you were creating a cycle path. And that's just one little example I thought maybe you could share to just give a yeah. give an example of this, because there's there's so many ideas. And I think it's really nice to share like a little example of this is how it's working in real life with just one just one thing of, of everything that we have control over. Yeah, so um, in our in our capital city, uh, Cardiff, we're, you know, blighted like every capital city with, you know, long commutes, 
congested roads, high levels, illegal levels, actually, of, um, of air pollution. And so um, our Future Generations Act, one of the things it does, it requires all of our public services to come together to jointly plan and find solutions to, to problems together. And um, as a result of that, so they set a joint priority that they wanted to um, reduce air pollution, reduce congestion, reduce carbon emissions. And um, something really interesting happened then because... Um, as a result of this kind of collaborative working, a public health consultant was seconded to the council to lead on the development of a new transportation strategy with a public health lens at its kind of core, if you like. And when you apply that public health lens to what is a transport problem, you get a completely different set of solutions. Mm -hmm. You put a highways engineer on it, you're probably going to get more roads. You get a public health guy in there. And actually what he starts telling us is, well, um, we know that there are these particular neighbourhoods that have um, a 10-year lower life expectancy um, than these neighbourhoods. Um, they would benefit from improvements in air pollution, increased physical activity um, and so on. So we're going to invest not in new roads, but in closing roads off and constructing cycle routes. And we're going to target those cycle routes and bikes for hire and a range of other infrastructure towards those neighbourhoods that have the lowest levels of life expectancy. And when we're constructing these cycle routes, we could do it with concrete bollards and, um, and so on. And, you know, that would serve a purpose. But instead, we're going to also think about this duty we have to protect and maintain and enhance biodiversity. So we're going to clean and green these concrete jungle communities with the low levels of life expectancy. And in constructing the routes, we're going to construct them out of um, uh, nature-based solutions, trees, planting. Um, and in doing that, the other benefit is that our really decrepit sewerage system, which can't cope, and which floods all the time, is using nature to drain away um, the surface water. So it's no longer um, flooding. So we've cleaned and green communities. We're reducing air pollution. We're helping out the decrepit uh, sewerage system. We're making everything nicer and more attractive um, for these communities. We're helping to get them active and we're reducing our carbon emissions that's the sort of um approach that we want to see um all uh, authorities across wales um taking and there's loads of other examples of where that's happening where that coming together and that almost like what's the art of the possible here we're going to have cycle routes how do we do that in a way which has multiple benefits now i remember reading about sophie howe in rob hopkins book from what if to what is which is available in all good bookshops but hey try and get it from an independent one right now his book is full of examples like sophie's mentioned of where thinking differently about climate problems can really work and he also spoke to me for this podcast around the release of that book i will link to his episode in the show notes but for now back to my chat with future generations commissioner for wales sophie howe and i know you've talked about the phrase eco-literacy um, I wanted to tie that, sort of get you to explain a little bit about that. But also, I'm from England. I know Wales a bit. I've travelled around Wales. It's a beautiful country. Like, historically, I know that Wales's economy was quite carbon-based. So I wondered whether you could talk about eco-literacy and also the reactions you've had to this more eco kind of holistic approach to the future of Wales when you've been speaking to people. So, um, I mean, the 
setting a vision to make Wales the most eco-literate country in the world is, is um, something that I've set out as one of these 48 recommendations in the, in the manifesto. And when I talk about eco-literacy, I'm talking about what we teach our kids in schools. I'm talking about the sorts of skills and apprenticeship programmes we, um, we develop and deliver. Are they, um, you know, are we equipping more people to do jobs which are going to be automated? Or actually, are we um, finding apprenticeship programmes for the next renewable energy technicians of the future or the land management consultants or operators or whatever um, they might be. And I'm also talking about eco-literacy within public policy and within the delivery of public services. One of the, um, you know, back a couple of years ago, I produced a list of what we call simple changes that public bodies could um, could undertake, really simple things they could do, which would make a contribution to the, to the goals. And one of them was don't cut the grass. Um, local authorities and anyone who owns land don't cut the grass. Instead, um, plant wildflowers, create space for nature, um, you know, you're you're helping to, you know, act as um, a carbon sort of sink in some areas, you're, you know, creating that space for nature. They actually look really nice, people um, like them. And by the way, you're saving yourselves a load of money by not cutting the grass. Um, we almost need to just be having those sorts of, you know, our, our public servants who make those decisions on a day-to-day -day basis, they need to have that eco-literacy to understand how they might be able to do things differently, which would have, have a benefit rather than a disadvantage to, um, to the environment. So that's the kind of aspiration that um, that I've set out here in Wales. And, you know, we have lots of good programmes. Every school in Wales has a, um, an eco council. We have some really good stuff around, you know, programmes with Wales for Africa. Um, we've got a big um, scheme that has been launched now by the Welsh Government around the, the circular economy. Wales is second in the world, only to Germany is the, the first, Wales is second, but we're quickly catching up on them in terms of the level of our recycling. So we've got a, you know, a, strong, um, a strong game here, but I think that we could, go, um, we could go much further. And I think that, you know, when you pass legislation, some people might think, all oh, right, it's a law now, you've got to do these things. So therefore, you know, the decisions and the culture of the last century around short-termism and silo-based working and all of those problematic things that we do suddenly going to change overnight. And, you know, that's whether you've got a law or not, that just doesn't happen. Um, and so what I've focused a lot of my time on over these first five years is really what I call the kind of building a movement for change. And, you know, I've had some quite tricky um, issues to, to deal with. And I've, you know, fallen out with some people and challenged um, some people, um, you know, some of the business community in particular. Um, one particularly sticky issue was around the construction of a 13 mile stretch of, of motorway around Newport. And I intervened in that issue. The government were going to spend one and a half billion pounds on constructing this, um, this motorway. Um, for its economic benefits to Wales, um, which I said were questionable. And in any case, it didn't align with, you know, please explain to me how this aligns with our duties under the legislation to reduce our carbon emissions, to protect nature. Please explain to me how it meets our goal of a more equal Wales when 25% of people in the region, the lowest income families, don't even have access to a car. So how is it benefiting them? And what happened there is, um, you know, the government, what had previously been regarded as a done deal, the road was going ahead, the government changed their position. And we're now having, um, I think, six new 
train stations, um, mass investment in um, cycling and walking infrastructure and public transport networks and so on. And I think at the time, you know, organisations like the CBI and some of the business community were saying, you know, that, you know, that futures woman, you know, what is she on about? She's going to decimate our economy. But actually what I'm saying is, um, climate change is so serious that every country is going to be having to move very, very quickly um, in the direction of drastically reducing um, their carbon emissions. So building more roads um, is not the solution to doing that. And actually what we want to be in Wales is ahead of the game on that. And really interestingly, because we've had this law, as I said, it's not going to change things overnight. And because we've had some of those battles and those big debates, um, actually, the CBI and I are pretty good friends now. In fact, they just wrote to the government recently, um, to the First Minister, um, fully endorsing my COVID recovery uh, plans and, um, and so on. So I think they are starting to see there's a movement in Wales which has been triggered by this legislation, which is actually we need to do things that are fit for the future and we need to do things that are better for people um, and planet. And collectively, we are, um, you know, there's enough innovators out there for us to find what those solutions are. Yeah, that's lovely. And nice to hear you're back on the Christmas card list as well <laughs> for the CVI. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, and also I wanted to mention you, you talk about the future obviously um, 16 and 17 year olds are going to be able to vote in this vote that's coming up in May how important do you think it is and uh, and sort of why do you think our current sort of laws in England and the rest of the world are set higher when it comes to these sort of votes well I mean it's critically important isn't it I mean I think that you know the likes of Greta Thunberg and you know we have our own Greta Thunbergs here in in Wales and of course you do you know there I've met many of them from uh, many different countries you know they probably had more impact in terms of calling current generations and current set of decision makers out um, on climate change in particular than, than anything that's happened in the bowels of the United Nations um, where all the supposed, you know, real discussions go on. And, you know, I think that, you know, there's, there's something incredibly powerful about our future generations eyeballing um, current leaders and asking them how, you know, to explain themselves in terms of how they are acting to protect their planet for the future. And I suppose the next iteration of that then is to, you know, lower the voting age to give... Um, some of those future generations more of a, a say and I think this year is particularly important in that regard you know we've seen um, what's happened with Brexit and the disparity between how um, older and younger generations voted um, obviously the you know the big issues with um, with climate change and you know our current and future generations are facing a series of disadvantages that um, older generations have not had to face. They're much less likely to own a home, the economic costs of climate change, you know, particularly with COVID, the, you know, the economy and the jobs and skills market is looking really, really difficult for young people. So I think giving um, those people who have a long term, you know, personal vested interest in, in the future a vote is absolute um, common sense. And I really hope that it will make politicians um, sit up even more in Wales and take notice of the things that um, are going to affect their futures. 100%. This pandemic is obviously not a good thing, but like you say, it has given us that 
chance where we can't we can do nothing but pause and look at everything whether it's exams that's our health and you talk about people's health a lot of people are going to have long covid a lot of us have understood now during the pandemic how important outside space is and that's another thing that's part of your manifesto having is it 300 meters from your house having some green space again and i think you know um we wrote um our recommendations prior to um prior to the pandemic but I think many of them have now become even more relevant. So many people, um, you know, would have been feeling so much worse if they weren't able to use um, that public open space. But so many of our communities have never had that benefit. They live in areas which are densely populated, where we've crammed more and more buildings in and have forgotten the green space and infrastructure and are not really um, uh, um, understanding the benefit that that brings to people's physical and mental health. So my aspiration is that back to the way that we plan and design and build our communities, that we should be aiming for everyone to be able to access green space within 300 metres um, of their home. And again, there's different ways of, of doing that. What I talked about in terms of how we're constructing our cycle lanes, you know, that's helped to do that in this particular um, area of Cardiff. So I think those things are really, really important as well. Yeah. And uh, as I say, I know we're coming to the end of our time now but it is such a holistic approach and you are the very first person in the world tasked with what you're tasked with i do believe there are some countries now that are taking this on board and i think you had a visit from the new zealand government but when it comes to other governments would you like to see more of this all over the world are you helping to spread this message outside of wales currently Yes, absolutely. We've had a huge amount of interest in what we're doing here in Wales. Um, That has prompted actually this week, there's a private members bill going through the um, House of Commons, which was... um, uh, has been um, initiated by Lord John Bird in the House of Lords. He's the founder of The Big Issue and he's coming at it from, you know, decades and decades. Well, he's actually been a homeless um, person himself, but working with homeless people. In, again, how mad is the system that we don't recognise and prevent this from happening and we just all only focus on kind of picking up the pieces um, afterwards. So how a bill like the Future Generations Act could start to address some of those um, issues. And he's been joined by Caroline Lucas, um, who's obviously very much coming from, you know, the wellbeing of future generations from an environmental perspective. And she's taken it through the House of Commons. Now, um, at the last election, all of the main political parties said that they would support it. Now, we know that what people say in elections isn't necessarily always what um, what happens. And it's very difficult for private members' bills to get through. But I think that this is the start of a movement, um, a building movement in, in, in the UK. Um, just a few weeks ago, I was with the Scottish National Party um, at their conference, and they later passed a motion to have um, a Wellbeing with Current and Future Generations Act in their manifesto. So hopefully we might see Scotland go next. And then countries like New Zealand, um, like Finland, more recently I've been with the uh, German Bundestag, um, talking to their government about um, how we're approaching sustainability here in Wales. And my real dream, I suppose, is for the United Nations to make it a kind of, you know, something which they are promoting um, amongst countries across the world. I and mean, wouldn't it be amazing if um, if we get Biden um, engaged? Imagine the difference if America started thinking about the well-being of future generations as well. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah, I, 
think that we're speaking again on the day that the news is coming out of Georgia. So, so yeah, um, uh, we're nearly done with our time. But I just wanted to ask you because I know you are um, a bit of a fan of secondhand fashion. So I wondered if you had any tips for us when it comes to that. Do you know what? There is absolutely nothing I love more than browsing um, a good charity shop. And um, my kids, so I've got um, I've got five children and the three um, oldest are sort of 14 to, to 21. So they are um, they are Depop addicts. They are charity shop addicts as well. Um, the the fashion that they sort of come back with is absolutely amazing. My um, older son's uh, partner is um, she did a, a fashion degree, so they've been upcycling, tearing, resewing, and doing all manner of of things. Um, and there's very little that they buy from you now. And my best fashion finds are um, you know the ones that always say, "Oh, that's nice. Where did you know? Where did you get that?" And I'm like, oh yeah, it was three pound fifty in the council research shop so i mean what's not to love about that it's like i i browse in my local community i'm putting money back into a good cause i'm you know i'm not filling landfill with uh, fashion i'm reducing uh, waste and carbon emissions from creating new so yeah love a bit of um pre-loved fashion loving that bringing a bit of depop to the to the show today um we always ask our guests sophie two important questions because we are called the age of plastic i do believe it's a useful material we're just using it the wrong way um plastic pollution is a good gateway i think for lots of people into climate discussions everything is connected as we've discussed on this podcast but do you have an item in your life that you're like i am thankful for plastic that that exists your favorite sort of non-single-use plastic item Oh, uh, oh, gosh, this is a this is a, a tricky one, I suppose. Gosh, they are very well used. These things. <laughs> these have got to be my IKEA children's plastic plates. Um, does every mother not have these IKEA children's plastic plates? I have had mine, I reckon, for about seventeen years, um, and they are still going. Um, I think I bought about oh, I don't know must have bought about sort of 15 of them I've got a big watch of them in my you know in that that dreaded Tupperware drawer that you know is the Tupperware drawer of hell um but um yeah there there they live and they are out every single day so that's a really good one I don't think we've had that one before and I love that you bring up the Tupperware drawer of hell ours is a drawer and um, put your put your lids on the Tupperware that's what I've learned how keeping them separate you're just creating problems for future you that's what I say um oh, and finally Sophie I wanted to ask you your environmental hero um I mean it's it's difficult not to say um Greta Thunberg isn't it it's really difficult um you know not to to absolutely you know give her credit but I would come back I suppose to okay she might be the figurehead of a of, of a movement of young people um but that movement is across the world um you know in in Wales it's Sean and it's Maisie um and it's um, you know, Molly, who's been on my Future Leaders Academy, and it's a whole range of brilliant young people out there. And also, I suppose, those people who are quietly burrowing away in whatever organisation they are in, challenging the status quo, um, and, you know, being determined to do better, better things. I think those unsung heroes, the ones who are going to make sure that, um, you know, their organisation is not procuring single-use plastic or or the ones who are going to implement the um, cycle to work schemes or that, you know, those sorts of people, I call them the frustrated champions. And there are hundreds and thousands out there. And our trick, I think, is to find them, support them and build more of them or create more of them. And that's the sort of thing that becomes that tipping point of change in the way that we do things out there. 
I love that. Frustrated champions. What a lovely note to end on. Sophie Howe, thank you for joining me on the Age of Plastic podcast. Thanks for having me. Sophie Howe, Futures Commissioner for Wales. Uh, very first person to get that job. How amazing is that? Take that, LinkedIn. Some other countries have followed suit as well. And as you heard, Sophie's all for that. So maybe we'll see one in every single country in the future. If you want to find out more about the manifesto, Futures Act, then have a little look. I've linked to them all in the show notes. And if you know anyone in Wales, do send this podcast to them and remind them to vote in the upcoming vote in May. On to today's Eco Life Hack, and it's about your mouth. Electric toothbrushes. Very difficult, lots of different parts, hard to recycle. Have you heard about Geo Organics' new electric toothbrush, though? It's an eco-friendly one, uses low-impact materials, and every single part of its toothbrush is recyclable, meaning you can send it back to them. Doesn't matter if it's not recycled where you are locally, they will take it and sort it out for you. Just a reminder, as always, you can always get in touch with me. You can email me or find me on social media, have a chat about something you've heard on the podcast or suggest an eco-life hack or a guest for me. Age of Plastic Podcast is us on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter, Andrea underscore Fox. And you can email me through my website as well. I am andreafox.co.uk. Coming up, hear how ITV, yes, the TV channel, are planning to meet their new pledge to reach net carbon zero by 2030. That's on the next Age of Plastic podcast. Until then, keep well, wash your hands, wear a mask. God bless.